Listeners, there will be no intro or outro today as such, as there's been an emergency that requires my attention. You may or may not be aware that there's a fire running rampant in Australia, and two of our closest friends are in that fire risk zone. As a result, we're offering them lodging to stay and ensure their safety. I won't have a chance to complete the full intro, but I prepared a set of folklore tales for you nonetheless. Have an awesome Wednesday, mates. Big shout-outs to my Patreon supporters, and we'll be in touch soon. Thank you so much, and enjoy. The Stag and the Snail On the day of the animals' fair at Lurilara, the stag and the snail met. It was a very hot day, and the animals, as they travelled to the fair, eagerly sought the shelter of the trees. There was a large rubber grove in the forest, and thither many of the animals hasted, panting from the great heat, and there laid down their burdens for a while, and rested in the cool shades. It was a familiar rendezvous, and many of the animals turned there, as much from habit as from fatigue, glad to meet old acquaintances. On the day which concerns this story, there was an unusually large throng, and they chatted together sociably about the different events of their lives and the circumstances of their neighbours. In one corner a group were noisily comparing notes with one another about the length of time it had taken them to travel certain distances. In this group was the stag, who monopolised the conversation and boasted of his own speed, and the buffalo, trying to be affable, said that they were bound to admit that the stag was now the swiftest animal in the jungle, since the dog had run away to man, and the entire company nodded in agreement. There was, however, a little grey snail in the grass with a shell on her back, who was very disgusted with the boastings of the animals, especially of the stag. As if swiftness was the only virtue to which an animal ought to aspire, in order to put a stop to their talk, she called out mockingly for them to look at the lather that covered their bodies from overexertion, and to compare her own cool skin which had not perspired at all in spite of the journey. Consequently, she claimed the honours for good travelling for herself. This was received with much displeasure by the animals, who felt their dignity had been flouted, for the snail was an insect in their estimation not fit to be admitted to their august company. The stag began to canter gracefully around the grove to prove his superiority, his fellow animals applauding admiringly. But the little snail was not to be silenced, and to show her contempt, she challenged the stag to run a long race with her, declaring that she would beat him. Many of the animals urged the stag not to heed the challenge of the snail, as it was only given to affront him. But he said that unless he would run, she would always insult him and call him a coward who had shown fear of a snail. So it was settled that the stag and the snail should run a long race, from the rubber grove to the top of Mount Shalong, on the animal's return from Lurilura. The name of this little grey snail was Ka Mata. As soon as the animals left the grove, she summoned together all her tribe to consider how to proceed so as to beat the stag in the long race. Many of the snail family found fault with her for her foolish challenge, but they were all prepared to help her out of her difficulty and to save her from the disgrace of defeat. 
It was decided in the family council that the snails should form themselves into a long line, edging the path all the way from the rubber grove to Mount Shalong, and hide themselves in the grass, so as not to be discovered by the stag. So the snails dispersed and formed themselves into a long line on the edge of the path. As soon as they had sold their wares, as soon as they had sold their wares, the animals hastened to the grove, laughing amongst themselves as they walked at the foolishness of Kamata, in setting herself up against the swiftness of animals, and they planned how to make her the general laughing stock of the jungle for her audacity. When they reached the rubber grove, they found Kamata ready for the race, having discarded her cumbersome shell and put herself into a racing attitude on the path, which caused them little, which caused them no little amusement. As soon as the signal was given, she dived into the grass and was lost to sight, while the stag cantered towards the mountains. After going some distance, he stopped, thinking that there would be no need to run further, as he imagined that the snail was far behind and likely to have given up the race. So he called out, Hey, Mata, art thou coming? To his surprise, the voice of the small snail answered close behind him, saying, I am here, I am here. Thereupon he ran on more swiftly, but after running several miles, he stopped again, and called out as before, Hi Mata, art thou coming? And again the voice answered close to his heels, I am here, I am here. Upon which the stag tore off at a terrific pace through the forest, only stopping at intervals to call out to the snail. As often as he called, the voice answered close to his feet, I am here, I am here, which set him racing with ever-increasing speed. When he reached the Ea Tree mountain, he was panting and quivering from his great exertions and longed to lie down to rest, but he saw before him the goal to which he was bound and spurred himself to a last effort. He was so exhausted as he climbed up the slopes of Shalong that he was giddy and faint and could scarcely move his wearied limbs, and to his dismay, before he reached the summit, he heard the tormenting voice of the snail calling out from the goal, I have won, I have won. Exhausted and defeated, the stag threw himself full length on the ground, and his disappointment and the sickness due to the terrible strain he had put himself caused him to spit out his gallbladder. To this day, no gallbladder is to be found in the anatomy of the stag, so he carries in his body the token of the great defeat he sustained through the wilds of Kapmata, the little grey snail, and the pathetic look has never gone out of his eyes. What caused the shadows of the moon? In the early ages there lived a family of deities, consisting of a mother and four children, three daughters and one son. They lived very happily for many long years, the children showing great respect to their mother and to one another. Their names were Ka'um, water, Ka-ding, fire, and Ka-sni, the sun, and the boy was called Ubnai, the moon. They were all very noble and beautiful to look upon as became their high destiny. But it was universally agreed that Kastni and Ubnai, the two youngest possessed greater beauty, the two youngest 
possessed greater beauty and loveliness than their two elder sisters. In those days, the moon was equal to the sun in brightness and splendor. When Ugnai grew up, he began to show somewhat wayward tendencies. He came and went at his own will, without consulting his mother or his sisters, and consorted with companions far beneath him in rank. Sometimes he would absent himself from home for many days, and none of his family knew whither he wandered. His mother often remonstrated with him, as is right for every mother to do, and she and his sisters endeavoured to guide him into more decorous habits, which he was willful and self-indulgent, thinking that he had a right to more liberty than his womanfolk allowed him. By degrees, he abandoned himself to a life of pleasure and wild pursuits, paying no heed to the advice and warnings of his elders. Once he followed some of his own low associates into the nether regions and spent a long time in that land of goblins and vice. After a while his thoughts came back to his family and his erstwhile radiant home, and a longing to see them came over him. So he quitted the nether regions and left his evil companions and returned to his home and his kindred. He had gazed so long on the hideous faces of the inhabitants of the dark world that he was dazzled by the beauty of his sister Karsni, who came to meet him with smiles and joy for his return. He had lost the right perception of duty and honor. Instead of greeting her as his sister, he went to his mother and with unbrotherly wantonness damned the hand of Karsni in marriage, saying that he had traveled throughout many worlds and had seen the sons of all nations, but there was no suitor to be found in the whole universe whose beauty could match that of Kastni, except himself. Consequently, he said that it behoved his mother to give countenance to his suit and to arrange the marriage. This caused the mother much grief, and she dismissed her son from her presence in dishonor. Kaskni, when she heard of his design, was enraged because of his unchast proposal, and in anger she went forth to seek her brother. When she found him, she forgot her usual dignity and decorum, and lifting a handful of hot ashes, she threw it into Ubnai's face. The ashes scorched his flesh so deeply that the marks have remained on his face to this day. Ever since then, the light of the moon has been pale, marred by dark shadows, and that is the reason he does not show his face in the daytime. What makes the lightning? In the early days of the world, when the animals fraternized with mankind, they tried to emulate the manners and customs of men, and they spoke their language. Mankind held a great festival every thirteen moons, where the strongest men and the handsomest youths dance, sword dances, and contested in archery and other noble games, such as befitted their race and their tribe as men of the hills and the forests, the oldest and the noblest of all the tribes. The animals used to attend these festivals, and enjoyed watching the games and the dances. Some of the younger and more enterprising among them even clamoured for a similar carnival for the animals, to which, after a time, the elders agreed. So, it was decided that the animals should appoint a day to hold a great feast. 
After a period of practicing dances and learning games, Uparthat, the Thunder Giant, was sent out with his big drum to summon all the worlds to the festival. The drum of Upyathat was the biggest and the loudest of all drums, and could be heard from the most remote corner of the forest. Consequently, a very large multitude came together, such as had never before been seen at any festival. The animals were all very smartly arrayed, each one after his or her own taste and fashion, and each one carrying some weapon of warfare or a musical instrument, according to the part he intended to play in the festival. There was much amusement when the squirrel came up, beating on a little drum as he marched. In his wake came the little bird, Shakilia, playing on a flute, followed by the porcupine marching to the rhythm of a pair of small cymbals. Everyone was exceedingly merry. They joked and poked fun at one another in great glee. Some of the animals laughed so much on the feast day that they had never been able to laugh since. The mole was there, and on looking upon he saw the owl trying to dance, swaying as if she were drunk, and tumbling against all sorts of obstacles, as she could not see where she was going, at which he laughed so heartily that his eyes became narrow slits and have remained so to this day. When the merriment was at its height, Ukui, the lynx, arrived on the scene displaying a very handsome silver sword which he had procured at great expense to make a show at the festival. When he began to dance and to branch the silver sword, everybody applauded. He really danced very gracefully, but so much approbation turned his head, and he became very uplifted and began to think himself better than all his neighbors. Just then, Upriathat, the thunder giant, happened to look around and he saw the performance of the lynx and admired the beauty of the silver sword, and he asked to have the handling of it for a short time, as a favor, saying that he would like to dance a little, but had brought no instrument except his big drum. This was not at all to Ukwe's liking, for he did not want anyone but himself to handle his fine weapon, but all the animals began to shout, as if with one voice, saying, SHAME! for showing such discourtesy to a guest, and especially to the guest by whose kindly offices the assembly had been summoned together. So, Ukwi was driven to yield up his silver sword. As soon as Upyat got possession of the sword, he began to wield it with such rapidity and force that it flashed like leaping flame, till all eyes were dazzled almost to blindness and at the same time he started to beat on his big drum with such violence that the earth shook and trembled, and the animals fled in terror to hide in the jungle. During the confusion, Upyathat leapt into the sky, taking the lynx's silver sword with him, and he is frequently seen brandishing it wildly there and beating loudly on his drum. In many countries, people call these manifestations thunder, and lightning, but the ancient castes who were present at the festival knew them to be the stolen sword of the lynx. Ukwi was very disconsolate, and has never grown reconciled to his loss. It is said of him that he has never wandered far from home since then, in order to live near a mound he is trying to raise, which he hopes will one day reach the sky. He hopes to climb to the top of it 
to overtake the giant, Upiathat, and to seize once more his silver sword. The Cooing of the Doves Of all the birds, there are none that keep themselves more separate than the doves. They do not peck at other birds as the crows and the vultures do, but on restless foot and wing, they quickly withdraw themselves from every presuming neighbor. The ancient casters say that at one time the doves sang like other birds, and the following story tells how they ceased their singing and came to express their feelings in the plaintive cuckoo, for which they are now noted throughout the world. Once a family of doves lived very happily in the forest, as its youngest member was a beautiful female called Kaparo. Her parents and all the family were very indulgent to her, and never permitted her to risk the danger of the grain field until they had ascertained that there were no hunters or wild beasts likely to attack her. So Kaparo used to stay in the shelter of her home until they gave a signal that the land was safe and clear. One day, while waiting for the signal, she happened to go up into a tall tree on which there were a cluster of luscious red berries growing. As the doves usually subsisted on grain, Kaparo did not pay much attention to the berries. She sat on a branch, preening her feathers and watching other birds who came to peck them. By and by, there came a smart Juliet, a jungle bird with gorgeous green and gold feathers, who perched to pick berries upon the very branch on which Kaparol sat. She had never seen such a beautiful bird, and to please him, she sang to him one of her sweetest songs. Juliet was quickly attracted by the sweet voice and the gentle manners of the dove, and a pleasant intimacy grew between the two. Kaparo came to that tree to preen her feathers and to sing every day, while the Juliet admired her and picked the berries. After a time, Ud Juliet sent to the dove's parents to ask her in marriage. Although their young daughter pressed them hard to give their consent, the parents were wise and did not want to trust the happiness of their pet child to a stranger until they had time to test his worth. They knew too that marriages between alien tribes were scarcely ever a success. So, to test the constancy of the young suitor, they postponed the marriage till the winter, and with that, the lovers had to be content. The parents remembered that the berries would be over by the winter, and it remained to be seen whether the Juliet would be willing to forgo his luxuries and to share the frugal food of the doves or whether he would fly away to some other forests where berries were to be found. Kaparo was so much in love that she was very confident of the fidelity of her suitor, but to her sorrow, as soon as the berries were finished, Aunt Juliet flitted away without even a word of farewell, and she never saw him again. From that time, Kaparo ceased to sing. She could only utter the longing and sorrow that was in her heart, in sad and plaintive tones. So the doves are cooing sadly even in their happiest moments to this day.
How the monkey's colour became grey. In olden times, the monkeys had long hair of different colours covering their bodies, and they were much more handsome than they are in present day. They were very inquisitive animals, and liked to meddle in the affairs of other people, and they caused a lot of trouble in the world. One day a monkey wandering on the plains met Ram, the god of the Hindus, searching for the goddess Sita. Ram, thinking that the monkey by his inquisitiveness and audacity might help to find her, bribed him to come to his service. After making inquiries far and near, the monkey heard at last that Count Sita was confined in a fort in the island of Ceylon. So he went and told the god Ram. Thereupon Ram gathered together a great host to go and fight the king of the island of Ceylon. But they found the place infested with dragons and goblins of most hostile disposition, so that they dared not venture to land. The hosts of Ram then held a consultation, and they decided that, as the monkey had been the cause of their coming here, he might find out a way for them to land without being destroyed by the dragons. The monkey, not knowing what to say, suggested that they should burn down the forest of Ceylon so that the dragons could have no place to hide. Upon this, the host of Ram declared that the monkey himself must go over to put his plan into execution. So, they dipped a long piece of cloth in oil and tied one end of it to the monkey's tail and set fire to the other end of it. And the monkey went over to the island and ran hither and thither, dragging the flaming cloth behind him and setting the forest on fire everywhere he went, until all the forests of Ceylon were in flames. Before he could get back to his companions, he saw with dismay that the cloth was nearly burnt out. Before he could get back to his companions, he saw with dismay that the cloth was nearly burnt out, and the heat from the fire behind him began to singe his long hair, whereupon, fearing to be burnt alive, he plunged into the sea, and the flames were extinguished. From that time, the monkey's hair had been grey and short, as a sign that he once set the forest of Ceylon on fire. How the Cat Came to Live with Man In olden times, Kat Mior, the cat, lived in the jungle with her brother, the tiger, who was king of the jungle. She was very proud of her high pedigree and anxious to display the family greatness and to live luxuriously according to the manner of families of high degree. But the tiger, although he was very famous abroad, was not at all mindful of the well-being and condition of his family, and allowed them to be often in want. He himself, by his skill and great prowess, obtained the most delicate morsels for his own consumption, but as it involved trouble to bring booty home for his household, he preferred to leave what he did not want himself to rot on the roadside, or to be eaten by any chance scavenger. Therefore, the royal larder was often very bare and empty. Thus the cat was reduced to great privations, 
but so jealous was she for the honor and good name of her house that, to hide her poverty from her friends and neighbors, she used to sneak out at night time, when nobody could see her, in order to catch mice and frogs and other common vermin for food. Once she ventured to speak to her brother on the matter, asking him what glory there was in being king if his family were obliged to work and to fear like common folk. The tiger was so angered that she never dared to approach the subject again, and she continued to live her hard life and to shield the family honor. One day, the tiger was unwell, and a number of his neighbors came to inquire after his health. Desiring to entertain them with tobacco, according to custom, he shouted to his sister to light the hookah and to serve it round to the company. Now, even in the most ordinary household, it is very contrary to good breeding to order the daughter of the house to serve the hookah. And Kamior felt the disgrace keenly, and, hoping to excuse herself, she answered that there was no fire left by which to light the hookah. This answer displeased the tiger greatly, for he felt that his authority was being flouted before his friends. He ordered his sister angrily to go to the dwelling of mankind to fetch a firebrand with which to light the hookah and Fearing to be punished if she disobeyed, the cat ran off as she was bitten and came to the dwelling of mankind. Some little children were playing in the village, and when they saw Ka Mior, they began to speak gently to her and to stroke her fur. This was so pleasant to her feelings after the harsh treatment from her brother that she forgot all about the firebrand and stayed to play with the children, purring to show her pleasure. Meanwhile, the tiger and his friends sat waiting impatiently for the hookah that never came. It was considered a great privilege to draw a whiff from the royal hookah, but seeing that the cat delayed her return, the visitors took their departure and showed a little sullenness at not receiving any mark of hospitality in their king's house. The visitors took their departure and showed a little sullenness at not receiving any mark of hospitality in their king's house. The tiger's anger against his sister was very violent, and regarding of his ill health, he went out in search of her. Kamior heard him coming and knew from his growl that he was angry. She suddenly remembered her forgotten errand and hastily snatching a firebrand from the hearth, she started for home. Her brother met her on the way and began to abuse her, threatening to beat her, upon which she drew down the firebrand at his feet in her fright and ran back to the abode of mankind where she has remained ever since, supporting herself as of old by catching frog and mice and purring to the touch of little children.